My name's Frank McKenna, and this is the latest Downtown in Business podcast. I'm delighted today to be in Birmingham, and joining me is Chrissy Wolf, a well-known character in these parts. And uh, Chrissy, uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for, for agreeing to do this with us uh, today. Um, before we get into the conversation, tell us a little bit about your career. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's very exciting to meet the the main Frank in real life. <laughs> <laughs> so she's yeah. so underwhelmed. Well, so absolutely underwhelmed. not. Absolutely not. Yeah, everything I hope should be Frank. <laughs> so yeah, so I've been in, in Birmingham for a long time. Actually, not an original Brummy. I'm actually from London, just outside of London originally, home counties, but migrated for uni. So I've been here over 15 years now. So I consider myself a Brummie now that I've settled in part of the furniture. So I'm a solicitor. That's uh, that's my day job. Uh, I'm also the founder of Law and Broader, which is a primarily YouTube-based resource for aspiring lawyers trying to get into the profession. Um, but I also do mentoring, coaching events uh, surrounding kind of getting people into the profession and creating accessibility. Mm. And Law and Broader is obviously a fascinating initiative and one that you've clearly got a passion for and driven, I guess, um, by the objective of attracting more females into the law. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. I think um, accessibility has always been something which I've been really passionate about. I really struggled myself to get into the profession. Uh, It took me a long time to secure a training contract and qualify as solicitor, hit a number of hurdles. And I really started the YouTube channel, which was sort of the starting point for Law & Broader to kind of give some of my experiences to other people who were going through the same thing, uh, gives them some advice, hopefully give them a bit of inspiration. The fact that I did get there eventually and, and here I am. So I really wanted to kind of talk through how I did it and, and what I did and hopefully give some people some hope that they could get there as well. Obviously a lot of females resonate with, with my journey. Definitely. Um, I think, you know, historically the profession is really male dominated. We've only been allowed, women have only been allowed to practice lawyers for the last hundred years. We just had our, had our centenary. So it's definitely, I think it's always been more difficult, I think for females to, to get into the law. So I think I really wanted to, to share what I'd been through and my experiences to kind of hopefully encourage more people to, to follow that dream if that's what they want to do and they're struggling with it. And it's important, isn't it, that people can actually listen to someone who associates with the challenges that they're having to deal with on a daily basis, I guess. Um, but then equally, somebody, as you say, has overcome those challenges and gone on to forge a successful career in the profession. T- tell us what sort of two aspects, I suppose, to that, what those barriers were and, and how you advise people to overcome them. So I think my main barrier when I was, well, I suppose it starts a bit earlier, actually. I've got a kind of convoluted history. Uh, so I was home educated when I was younger um, and didn't go didn't go to school till much later in life and struggled a lot with the school environment, with my academics after I started. I'd always done okay when I was younger, went to school and everything just kind of went downhill from there. A bit of a culture shock and just didn't really take well to the whole studying environment with 
a group, lots of other people, people my own age. It was all just a massive change all around a really critical time in my academics. And as a result, they suffered quite a lot. So my A-levels were pretty poor, which is not a great starting point for wanting to pursue one of the most academically focused <laughs> careers that you can possibly get. Um, it wasn't actually my original intention to go into law. I actually wanted to be a vet. I spent a lot of time around animals when I was younger. Um, our house was full of them. So that was the obvious choice when I was younger. But again, very academic career and just did not have the grace to support that. So I actually ended up, uh, I ended up at Birmingham Uni, albeit that I didn't get the grades to study my first choice, which was biosciences. But I, I basically uh, borderline bullied Birmingham University <laughs> to let me in because I had my heart set on Birmingham. I visited it on the most lovely sunny day and it, I loved the campus, loved the people. And in my mind, that was it. I was not going to go anywhere else. And I just didn't give a damn that the grades were not up to scratch. I said, I'm going to get in here somehow. So I rang around a few different departments at Birmingham Uni to say, right, I haven't got the grades to study biosciences. Is there another way that I can get in basically? So uh, ended up finding my way into the chemistry department, which I actually, in all fairness, did not want to do. I'd studied biology, chemistry, physics, and maths at A-level and wanted to do biology because that was kind of closely related to two animals, which was my end goal at that point. Uh, so ended up getting through the chemistry department, which point my heart sank because that was the last thing that I actually wanted to do. But I spoke with the chemistry department and they said, right, you can do a foundation year in chemistry with the grades that you have. And if you get a first, then there is an option for you to then transfer into another science department within Birmingham Uni because the science department's all quite closely linked, biology, chemistry. So I said, right, okay, I'll bite the bullet. I will do this foundation chemistry course and I will damn well get my first, which I did. So I did it, painful year, uh, got my first in foundation chemistry and then went on to study Bio, and then transferred into bioscience, um, graduated with a 2-1 in bioscience, by which point I was, I was kind of fed up at uni by, by that point, four years down the line, I was thinking, right, okay, so now I've got to go to vet school, which is going to be another four or five years because doing a baseline bioscience degree was actually, didn't give you a good enough chunk of your vet degree to take up it's a five or six year course vet study. So I thought, right, I'm not sure about this anymore. Actually, I'm not sure about, about doing this. So at that point is when I started looking at alternative careers and actually went to see a careers advisor at the university. And I said, right, what kind of things do people go into? This is my skill set. This is my degree. And one of the things which came up after kind of teaching and lecturing and research, which are usual kind of science-y type careers, it actually came up with law and said a lot of people with science degrees go into certain areas of law, um, particularly areas which have a kind of science tie. So one of them was patents, which is one area. And the other area is medical law, medical law, personal injury, because that also requires a science background. It's useful to have a science background. So it was at that point that I thought, right, okay, I, you know, I might, I'd never really thought about law. I'd thought of law as kind of being a very stuffy, boring career, lots of paperwork, big offices. And I was an, I was an outdoorsy girl at, at that point. And, uh, I kind of thought, I'm not, I'm not sure this is for me, but did some work experience in a few different types of law firms, a few different types of law, and actually found that I, I really, really enjoyed it. Particularly the medical side was the one that I really wanted to go for. Um, but again, kind of had this hang up of my A-levels. I thought at that point, great, I've got my two one. I've, you know, I, it's fine. My A-levels don't matter anymore. Off I go. This is great. And then started looking at applications 
the training contracts in law and realized that they all wanted my A-levels and they all wanted them to be three A. So I was back in the same hole that I was in <laughs> several years previously. Um, but I was still pretty determined. So I applied to a load of law firms in kind of my first year that I started studying. So I did the conversion course, which you can do in one year if you've already got an undergraduate degree, which I did. So did the postgraduate conversion course, started looking into um, sort of started looking into training contracts, which is the process by which you qualify as a solicitor. It's kind of like a two-year apprenticeship, which you have to complete in order to become a lawyer. And so I look at these, got rejected universally in my first year from everywhere. Um, I think largely on the basis of my grades, I think possibly also on the basis that I wasn't really sure what I was doing at that stage and probably didn't put together the best applications uh, in hindsight. So got really disheartened, got a lot of law firms that I sort of wanted to apply to, just said, we're not even going to let you submit an application with those grades. You know, you can't even, as soon as I put them onto the application form, they just, I just had a sign flash up to say, you cannot proceed any further with your application, uh, which wasn't ideal. A lot of tears, a lot of stress, a lot of, is this what I, you know, is this really what I want to do? Maybe I do just need to, you know, a lot of lawyers said, oh, maybe you should just do something vocational. The law isn't for you. Those grades, you're clearly just not academic. So maybe you should just pick something else because you're really going to struggle. Um, you obviously struggle with academics. So I had a lot of that. Um, but I'm a little bit rebellious and that kind of made me want it even more. But everybody was saying, this isn't for you. You know, do, you know you're not an academic person. I thought, oh, hold on a minute. That's not really true. Uh, so I kind of made me more determined in a way. So yeah, so... I, a second round of applications, put together much better applications. I was really strong on the firm that I wanted to apply to, which is the best firm for personal injury and medical negligence in, in the UK. And I had my heart set on it. I knew, uh, you know, I'd done lots of research, attended loads of events. That was the one. So I got my, put together a strongest application I could and put it in on the first day the application opened. And fortunately got through the process, a very long convoluted process. I think they had something like over 2000 applications that year for eight places, for eight training contracts. So that's, that's the kind of competitive nature that we're in with the legal environment. Um, so yeah, it's, it's super, super competitive in terms of the number of people who want to enter the profession and the number of people who actually end up qualifying. So eventually I got there, um, is, is the upshot. Uh, so I did my training contract, uh, 2013 qualified in 2015 and I've been practicing full time ever since, um, in, in medical law, which is, is great international personal injury and medical law net, which is now what I specialize in. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of a long convoluted journey. I feel like that went on longer than it should have done. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's not a short story, but it is kind of necessary to explain, to explain the hurdles that yeah, I went through. Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the first thing I pick up on there is this academic education that mm. I think in the UK in particular, we're hung up on almost, mm. you know, it, it oh, overrides yeah. so many other things. So, you know, the, there's lots of entrepreneurs and, and business people who I meet who will all say, actually, academic, academia just wasn't for me. Mm. I didn't particularly want to go to university. I didn't like school. Yeah. You know, I just didn't feel it. And they've gone on and forged great businesses, great careers without those bits mm. of paper. Mm. And again, from my own personal experience, um, I didn't go to university, but equally the people that we employ, often it's those that don't come with the bits of paper who are far more personable, have better interaction with people, uh, probably think a little bit more commercially than those who've gone through that formal education who are fantastic at passing exams, but actually that's just one skill. 
And some people are great at being able to memorize stuff and then put it to paper. And again, the tale I often tell, um, but my wife, who's, who's got a successful business in her own right now, she's got more bits of paper than you can shake a sticker. She did at school French, A, in O-level French. She cannot speak a word of French now. Mm. And I asked myself, what is the point of the curriculum that we have in place still today when we're churning out people who can simply get A to C's but actually don't have those interpersonal skills that you clearly have in abundance. I mean, your personality, you know, you, you can't tell as a business owner how good your personality is from looking at a piece of paper saying, oh, well, I only got that at A level. So that must have been fiercely frustrating for you at that stage, knowing that you could do the job, but being stopped because, oh, I just didn't get those couple of bits of paper. Yeah, it was. It was really frustrating. And I think sort of combination of factors, yeah, because I, I was thinking actually, you know, my academics prior to that were, were really good. It was a combination of factors why I didn't perform at those particular exams, which ended up being really critical. And, and secondly, for the exact reasons that you just said, actually, that I think learning the material is one thing, but actually taking exams is a skill in itself, revising and performing in that kind of an environment. And that's actually not representative of, of very many occasions you find yourself in later on in life. Actually, you do, you do have to be under pressure. You do have to be under time pressure, but that kind of exam environment, I mean, as a lawyer on a day-to-day basis, I never have to memorize anything ever. I've got books everywhere. I might have to do something under time pressure, but not in that kind of intense environment. So I think kind of sort of judging people based on their performance in that environment, which is not representative of anything like what being a lawyer is like on a day-to-day basis is, is almost a bit of a mismatch there with what you're testing versus what the skills they actually need to go forward. And I, I talk a lot about this and kind of my issues with exams. I mean, I would, obviously, I mean, people who perform really well in exams don't have this issue, clearly <laughs> don't have this be in their bonnet, surprisingly, but, but I do because I, I just don't think it's, it's representative and, and clearly it's not because I don't have great A-levels and I've gone on to be fairly successful, I think, as a solicitor with, with the other skill set. And I think on, honestly, if I, if I could go back, what I would probably say in hindsight is that I would have preferred to do an apprenticeship or something like that. Because although I use some skills from my degree, I suppose I'm one of the, one of the lucky people in a way that I do use some of my biosciences degree, but so many people just do not use the subject that they studied. And I think studying an academic subject at a degree level is, I wouldn't say a waste of time. It depends on the subject, but actually you're far better off, I think, learning a craft early on, developing the skill set you need and getting ahead in that business, learn that business. And you will be successful so much more, so much more quickly than taking two or three years out to study a really specific subject, but that doesn't actually build any kind of peripheral skill set. It just teaches you again, the skills of revising, listening to lectures, exam taking, but nothing more global in terms of what you actually need to be successful in life. I don't think. And that's such a specific skill. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think, and I'm really glad that apprenticeships are becoming more and more common in law. They weren't, um, although the training contract is kind of like an 
apprenticeship, the way you apply for it involves you have, it requires you to have good academics. Whereas now we're coming across more and more apprenticeships with students, A-level students. And the requirement is that you don't have a degree, you have to be an A-level student and start at that stage. And I think that's, I'm so glad that that's happening because I think we'll get some really, really fantastic lawyers out of that process when people are starting young and building that skill set much younger. I think they're going to go really far and kind of building their people skills, working in office environment, learning about business at a young age, I think is, is far better than spending another three years in effectively kind of a school environment where you're not learning that. And then you've got to start later in life building those skills. So I'm a huge advocate of, of an apprenticeship program for getting into law. I just think it's invaluable. There've been a number of changes, I think positively in law. Mm. And, uh, and I guess one of those changes is that it's become somewhat easier for females to break into the profession. That being said, you know, I know lots of female solicitors, female barristers, um, who have told me some stories that have made my hair stand up on the back of my neck and I'm not by any means shrinking violet. Um, so just in terms of that boys club element of the law, is that something that you have to be mindful of if it's something that you can ignore? How easy is that for a young female in particular going into that profession and you know, you've overcome some significant challenges on the academia side, but then you break through into the law and then you find, you, know, you probably find yourself going to a networking event, for example, and there's 50 grey suited guys in the room, mostly my age or above, and you. Um, you know, so those are some, I'm guessing, of the other barriers and challenges that you've got to be conscious of when you go into the legal profession. Absolutely. I mean, what's interesting actually is that in terms of the stats for people entering the profession, actually there's slightly more, very slightly more females entering than males who actually start off. But then as you progress through your career, females drop off massively. They just don't stay in that career. They don't stay in the profession compared to men, which is really interesting. And, and that's actually something which the Birmingham Law Society are looking into at the moment, They're looking into those stats and trying to find out exactly why that is and whether it's the lifestyle, whether it is to do with feeling uncomfortable in that environment. You know, is it just not compatible with you know being a senior partner in a law firm with being a female? And if so, why is that so? So it's interesting because it should be, it should be equal in terms of numbers that are going in. It, sh it should be, it should be reflected all the way through the process up to senior partner or high management level. Those, those should be even, but it's just, it's just not, that's just not the case. Um, and I, I think that's for a range of factors. I think everybody's experience is in, entirely subjective. I think it massively depends on what area of law you do, what kind of firm you work for, what kind of clients you have. I've been very fortunate actually in, in my career um, because my firm is, is brilliant. I've, I've never had any issues with sort of feeling inferior or feeling left out in, in social situations or around the office. Um, and I think actually my industry generally, which is personal injury law, does tend to be slightly more female heavy. I think because sometimes the nature of what we have to deal with, I think I think females do possess sometimes a stronger skill set, you know, particularly with with having to empathise with clients and and having to help them through really catastrophic injuries. I think particularly, I think females kind of lend themselves to that really well. So I think in personal injury, which is my my experience, it's actually quite female friendly. But I have friends who are at the same level as me 
um, who have had very different experiences working in corporate and commercial environments, for example, which is very male dominated and it's very much, oh, the boys go and play golf and, you know, the females get excluded and, and also the work environment is, is very heavily male dominant. And so I, I think it does differ massively uh, dependent on your own experience. And it's not kind of, I don't think you can generalize the profession. Um, in, in one way or another. Um, but I do know people who've had, who've had very negative experiences, um, which is a real shame. And that, that really shouldn't be happening in this day and age. You know, that's, you know, completely ridiculous. And I think it is improving. I think it is improving. Definitely. I think the generation of lawyers who are coming through now are much more liberal, much more accepting, you know, I, but I think the problem is that some of the where you've got law firms, where you've got senior partners who are, who are, you know, reaching near retirement age. They're of that older generation. They're of the generation that came through when there just weren't as many females. It's much more difficult, I think. And I think the, the mindset is a bit older, but I think that that is something that kind of through just, you know, natural, natural succession. I think the attitude will. Death. Yeah. 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 Well, it will, well, I think, you know, you've got to say law firms, I mean, females are obviously a great asset to any team. We possess a different skill set. And I think men and women working together in a collaborative way produces a much more effective team, much better results. So it is kind of like natural selection. If you've got a law firm who has got an all male board, they're just not going to do as well as a board, you know, as a law firm with a mixed board, you know, that, and that's, and, and that will naturally work its way out. And I think, and I think it will happen over time that the attitude differs and improves, you know, through, through that process, because it is a, it is a much more successful collaboration to have a mixed board and to have females in, in the right positions. And, you know, and I, I think it, it will, it will definitely, it definitely is improving over time and will improve in the future. But there are still other factors which which make it difficult for females in professions. It's, it's long hours, but it's not really compatible with having a family. It's not it's not great. The hours are long. They are kind of unpredictable. You can get things landing on your desk at the last minute. If you've got to go pick your kids up from work, what are you going to do about that? Very difficult to plan in a, in a career in law because things just happen and you just have to deal with them, which isn't compatible with having family commitments. And so there are, there are other issues as well in that the, the law just isn't great for females in certain circumstances, but I, I think you can work around that. I think there are ways of working around. That. I think firms are putting measures in place more and more to make sure they keep their really good female staff and they accommodate them wherever possible. Because again, they're going to suffer if they lose them. There are firms which are more accommodating and the, the good females are going to go to the firms which are more accommodating. So, you know, again, sort of natural selection is going to do its work there, I think, so that we do liberalise the attitude and make it more and make it easier for women to succeed in the profession and succeed at those high levels as well. I think you've hit the nail on the head for me in terms of why any firm in any sector should be looking to retain and recruit good female people to work in their business. And that's the bottom line, isn't it? It's the economic sense. Mm. And I think that, you know, often um, we can get caught up. I, I think in, I want to describe it as trivial because that then sounds as though I'm being um, a little too critical of some of the narrative around the female agenda. But, you know, I, I get, I roll my eyes sometimes at some of the stuff I see on social media, you know, whether it be a, a photograph of three guys on a panel, which we had recently, you know, and, and all of a sudden there's a bandwagon of people, oh, another manal. And you think, well, there's, there's reasons for that, you know, and actually we've just done events with five women and nobody says anything. 
and for me, you know, to promote the female agenda as we do as an organization and we take it very seriously, we want to be talking to business leaders, business owners, and decision makers about that economic impact and the positivity of having females in your business. So it's for me, you know, your message resonates because mm. that's what businesses should be thinking about. It's, yeah. it's not, look, it's not about ticking boxes. It's not about having the right number of people no. in a room. It's about having quality women as part of your business to drive that business forward. And it should always be about, you know, it should always be a meritocracy, really. It should always be having the right people in the right positions. It's not about, like you said, it's not a tick box. It's not saying, oh, well, we've got five men, so now we need to find five women to match the five men. It's about having the people with the right skills that you need. And I think naturally men and women have different skills and then working together you're going to get the best, most robust team doing doing that work if you've got a mix. So I think it should always be based, always be based on merit. And if that is a situation, then again, you know, naturally you are going to get mixed panels. Um, you're going to get mixed mixed boards, um, which which is definitely the way to go. I mean, it's, it, like I said, it's about equality. It's not saying that we should be above the men or doing more than the men or taking over from the men. It's just about saying, you know, we should have we sh- we should be equal in how we've in how we've viewed and, and our promotion opportunities. And, and I think that is that is definitely happening. Um, but it's not just about within firms as well. You, you get it from our clients, which is interesting. So my experience, I've not really had any negative experience within my work environment from colleagues or anything like that. But from clients sometimes, you know, I'll walk into a room to meet my client. I've got my paralegal with me, who's male, and they'll instantly start directing the questions <laughs> towards him, thinking that he must be the lawyer and I must be the paralegal or the assistant. And, you know, very quickly they change their tune and it, you know, I've not had a negative experience, but it's just interesting that that's the natural direction still. And, and similarly, my friends have had similar experiences, particularly with the more corporate commercial clients, you know, who they just sometimes, if there's, if there's a man, man and a woman in the room, just naturally migrate towards a man or think that they have more weight, what they're saying, you know, must, must be better because they're the man in the room. So it's, you know, it's actually changing client attitudes as well, because I mean, we live to serve our clients as lawyers. It, it's all about that. And if our clients don't modernize their attitudes, we're going to struggle too on the other side of the desk. So, you know, I think it's a global attitude, obviously impacts on the legal profession, but I think everyone's attitude towards towards women in law has to change, not just within firms, but also from a client perspective. Yeah, yeah. That's a, well, that's an interesting take. Yeah, it's totally different with me. I walk into a room with any of my female staff and everybody looks towards the female because they know how bloody hopeless I am. <laughs> Um, so, and our producer Keris is not in agreement here. Um, so we talked a bit about, you know, the barriers and the challenges, um, but equally you've referenced this as well. There have been some positive changes in the legal profession. I'm sure you've seen massive changes just in the relatively short period of time that you've been in it five years now. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things that has changed significantly during that time is the introduction of what was known back in the day as Tesco Law, which was the opportunity for anybody to almost open a high street solicitors firm. You didn't have to be qualified. You had to have solicitors working with you, but you could still start a law firm. Now, I don't think that had the the sort of shake-up and deregulative effect that the government anticipated, And, and maybe a bit of the traditionalist in me is pleased about that. Nonetheless, I think what it did do with legal firms was 
it made them sit up and start to think about something that you are clearly very good at, which is marketing and telling a story and making the law more personal and have a personality. So for you and people like you, that I would suggest was a really fantastic thing. It may not have seemed like at the time to lots of your colleagues, but for personalities like yourself, this was like, wow, this, this is an opportunity for me. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you're right in saying that uh, when this came about, I was literally just entering the profession when this was coming about, when this was changing, the system was changing. Actually, the Legal Services Act came in, um, which introduced what you're talking about as the Tesco law. So I think at the time I was so new to it, I didn't quite know exactly what that meant. And I didn't know my own skill set at that time either. I mean, I had no background in marketing. I didn't know anything about branding or, you know, I, you know, i I'd been an academic, basically. I'd been in school and done various other things. I worked in Ibiza for a while, um, doing various different jobs there. So I guess I knew I had a slightly different skill set. But for me, I didn't make the connection at that time. But absolutely, in the last couple of years, massively taken advantage of that, I think, in, in terms of, I think because there's now a bit more uncertainty, I think from a consumer angle, it's a lot more difficult to tell you know, who's, who's who, I think, because there now are so many different people who can deliver legal services in so many different ways, regulated, unregulated law firms, alternative legal services providers, in-house teams. Now the big four accountancy firms can deliver legal services. I think from a consumer point of view, it's, it's quite difficult to navigate this territory at the moment in terms of who you should go to. And I think at the beginning, what happened was I think people naturally gravitated towards law firms with an established name because they thought, right, we're not sure about what all these other guys are doing, but we know that these, you know, these law firms have been around for ages. And I think now we're kind of five years on from that. I think consumers are kind of starting to take notice of the fact that there are a number of different ways they can get the services that might be cheaper or more tailored or better. And it's not necessarily about the name on the door anymore. It's more about how how do I work with my lawyer? Finding a lawyer that works with me, with my business, who's on a level with me, who understands how I want my services delivered, how I live my lifestyle. And there's so many different ways that that can happen now. But I think clients are, are moving more towards finding this kind of tailored service that's right for them. And I think that's where you can really come into your own as a lawyer and building a personal brand, not just to do with the firm that you work for, but actually as a person and building a personal connection with your audience, with the clients that you want to, that you want to work with. And I think that's, that's so important. And I, I think the changing market, I think as well, kind of the rise of social media has really helped with personal branding. It's a brilliant way to build a personal brand. And that's something again, which law firms, well, no one was really embracing five or six years ago. I mean, Facebook was just for kind of stalking your pals at uni, wasn't it? It wasn't, I mean, it was, wasn't it? It was, you know, everyone you bumped into, add them on Facebook, add them on Facebook. And it was just kind of used to see what was going on in on uni campus. It wasn't ever envisaged at that time, I think, to be a business tool. I mean, perhaps Zuckerberg always had that idea, he probably did. But at that at the initial stage, it was not really a marketing tool or a business tool. And it grew into that. And then we had the likes of LinkedIn, Twitter, 
various other platforms. Those are the main ones that I use, which are now amazing tools for marketing your business, not just yourself. Um, and I think that, that those are some of the main tools that I've used to really build a personal brand and engage with an audience is by building a social media profile, having a consistent brand message, um, and then building that sort of niche audience over time. I think if I could give two top tips from my experience and how to kind of be successful in this field, I think it would be to find a niche and to build a personal brand, I think be my two hottest piece of advice, I think. And probably in any sphere, I mean, my experience is with law, but those two things I think is what really helped me to, to kind of I'm doing with, with law and broad is to have those two things. Yes, it is niche. And I think that can be daunting in a way because your market is smaller and it can be tempting to kind of say, right, well, let's do something that's that everybody wants, appeals to everybody because then I'll get more followers, build a bigger brand and it will grow quicker. Um, but actually, you know, you sometimes have to kind of take a step back and go, well, actually that's not the way I'm not going to build an organic engaged audience or client base if I'm just kind of scattergunning everybody. So I think finding a niche, it's slower, definitely slower burn building a niche, particularly if it's something that you've, you've not done before, something that doesn't exist, like a YouTube channel. What I did didn't really exist when I did it. There were kind of people, there were sort of students who were giving sort of study tips for law on there, kind of how to revise for your exams and stuff like that. But there were no real sort of qualified lawyers doing what I do, giving their experience, reflecting through the process. I do commercial awareness updates, legal updates and, and things like that, interviews of people in the profession. And that didn't really exist when I started it. And it was a slow process because of that, because nobody was searching for that on YouTube. And it was painful at the beginning because it was just very slow numbers, very slow growing. I thought, oh, is this really worth the time it takes me to shoot and edit these videos? And I'm getting like 20 views. It's but you know, one step away from talking to myself really in, <laughs> in this camera. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was painful at the beginning because it takes an incredibly long time to shoot and edit a YouTube video. And often, as I said, I was getting so few views. And I just thought, you know what, maybe this just isn't a thing. Maybe no one's doing it because they've tried it and it just doesn't work and they get, and they kind of get bored of it. But I set myself, I said, I'm going to do it for a year. That is my, you know, it's not costing me anything financially. You know, I borrowed a friend's camera. It's costing me my time and that's it. And I can deal with that for a year because I want to see where this goes. So, and that's what I did. And unfortunately, a legal publication called Legal Cheek picked it up actually and thought it was good. And they published an article about it and they've got something like 40,000 followers. And off the back of that article, I think I got something like nearly 1,200 subscribers within the, you know, from like 200 to in the week that followed that article. And it's just a case of, it was just a niche that people hadn't found, but when they found it, they liked it. And I think that was the key really. So that was one of the biggest turning points, I think, in, in the whole kind of LAB story was that, was that article. And I was like, oh my God, this works. <laughs> so, and then I kind of just ran with it from there really. And then people kind of said, oh, can you do this? Like, can you do coaching? Can you do mentoring? Can you do, we'd love to do events. And it is basically subscriber driven. I mean, LAB goes in the direction that my subscribers and my community want it to go in because it's there. It's a resource for them. It's supposed to be advice and it's supposed to be helpful. So I want to do what they want me to do. And then it's just evolved that way. Really, that's where it's gone in whatever direction it's been steered, basically. Um, so quite often people sort of ask me what the plans are for the kind of 
it's kind of dictated by the market, which is a great position to be in because it's a totally, it's a totally flexible business. Totally. So it can, it can go in whatever direction the market needs it to go in. So, and I kind of like that. I kind of almost like I've got, I've got some goals, which I'm going to keep to myself. (laughs) Don't tell everyone everything. Um, so, but I like the fact that it can go in whatever direction it needs to go and to move with the times because things change overnight. I started doing videos a lot about technology, which is something that's really starting to affect the legal world in the last few years. It's, it's become a major thing and, it, and it's great because I can talk about that because no one necessarily dictates what I can talk about on LABs. It's like, great, I want to talk about that. So let's talk about that. Um, and things that I think are important because sometimes students, particularly who are subscribing, don't always can't always see what's going on in the market because there's a massive gap between your university life and what actually happens on the ground in in the legal world. So I try and bridge that gap basically in a kind of relatable, fairly informal way. I mean, it, it is fairly, it's, it's relatable to students. So I don't sit there in an office with a suit on. I, I very much, it's very much in my lounge, you know, in a t-shirt. So, you know, I'm where you are. I'm where my audience is, you know, I'm present where they are. I'm living a life that they, that they live. You know, I'm not just, you know, hiding away in some tall office with big glass windows. Well, I am in the day, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I also live a normal life. And I think this is, this is one of the other things I kind of wanted to, to address the fact that you can have a life as well. It's called law and broader for a reason. And I also post videos on there that are not law related that show what else I do, which is quite a lot actually. Um, and to show that, you know, I'm not cooped up till two in the morning in that office. I've actually got time to shoot videos. I've got time to go to events. I vlog a lot about cars. I like cars. So I vlog at car events and stuff like that. And that was kind of one of the points I wanted to get across as well, that, you know, it's not a really stuffy profession. You know, it's hard, no doubt it's hard. There's long hours, but you can have a life as well. And, you know, a pretty, pretty fun one. I I definitely maximize the fun in my life. That's for sure. (laughs) Well, that brings me to the next point. I was going to Actually, and again, it's um, it's something that when we started downtown in business 17 years ago, um, we introduced the word personality into our awards. So finance personality, legal personality. And in the early years, people used to snigger about there being a legal personality because it wasn't necessarily seen as um, a profession that attracted big personalities. Now, obviously, if you know Uh, the history of law and the traditions of law. Actually, there are some really big personalities um, that I'm sure have acted uh, as role models for you and you've studied. But nonetheless, lawyers came across as being, I think you used the word earlier, a bit stuffy, maybe a bit serious, and not necessarily um, part of the human race as we know it. In fact, I remember surveys taking place in the 90s where I was a politician we used to be comforted by the fact that lawyers and journalists existed because they were the only two more unpopular professions than <laughs> politicians. I think that's probably changed in recent times. That's because I'm not a politician anymore. Um, but um, the personal brand thing and the marketing of the personality interests me um, because I think that some people try and do that and probably try too hard. I think people perhaps, um, as you've indicated, expect almost overnight success. And that's not going to happen unless you're really, really lucky. Um, and then the other thing I think is, is that, that actually some people just are cut out for that. You know, you, you can stand in a mirror, point a camera at yourself and talk 
tripe for 10 minutes and make you convince yourself that actually that's really good. Um, but I've looked at some of your YouTube videos and what strikes me is the energy that you have within those videos. So straight away, you're engaged with it because you're clearly very passionate about what you're talking about and what you do. Um, but was it a conscious decision on your part? I'm guessing it was from what you've said so far that you wanted to build that personal brand. And this is something that you see as part of your career progression. It's not just a hobby for you, is it? It's not just something that, oh, well, this is a bit of a laugh putting a YouTube video together. This is seriously about building the Chrissy Wolf band, brand and the, and then who knows, might be a band at one point, eh? <laughs> Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then going forward and, and developing some additional tools to your armory, really, because again, you've mentioned this, it's not just about PI, it's about lots of things. Yeah. I think initially it was, it kind of was just something I wanted to try. I initially, if I'm totally honest, totally frank, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't envisage this, right. I'm going to start building a personal brand. This is where I'm going with this. I'm going to build a business. That wasn't actually what it was at the outset at all. At the outset, funnily enough, my, one of my best friends is actually a pro YouTuber. She vlogs about Disney, so nothing related, but she's a pro. She was a pro at it. She kept saying, oh, Chrissy, you've got such good energy. You, you should do YouTube because you'd, you'd work really well on YouTube. And I kind of looked at YouTube but at that time, this was back in 2017. I looked at it. I thought, oh, it's all people talking about what's in their handbag. And it's, you know, it's 15 year olds talking about makeup. And I, you know, I'm not sure, you know, I'm a bit old for this. I'm not sure this is really what, this is really suited to me. Um, and I, but I kind of, on the flip side of that, the other part of me, I was doing a lot of mentoring, face-to-face -face mentoring, um, with as many students as I had time for, because I was quite keen to, to really facilitate accessibility. As I said at the beginning, you know, tell my story and hopefully help some people who are going through a similar thing. And these kind of two things just sort of gelled in my mind one day to say, right, there's this YouTube thing that I could do, but there's also the fact that I want to mentor loads more people. Hmm. Okay, could I could I actually put these two things together? Could I kind of do my mentoring on YouTube effectively, which is is kind of how I view it actually. I kind of view my subscribers as all my mentees. And I had, I think I had six mentees at the time, and now I've got four thousand to the best part of, which is amazing. You know, that's brilliant. I could never, you know, I you know, I could never have envisaged that at the beginning. And I would have, I would have loved that. So I think that's kind of how it started off. And I thought this is great for so many reasons because I can it is like online mentoring. It also facilitates accessibility because virtually anyone, you know, I think 98% of the population have an internet connection. You know, it doesn't matter where you live, whether you live on an estate, whether you live in, you know, Buckingham Palace, you have a Wi-Fi connection for the most part. So actually anybody can watch these and I can you know, impart some of my knowledge that I was fortunate enough to go to a, to a great, I went to University of Law, which is a fantastic law school, but actually I can impart some of what I've learned there on to people who don't have, you know, who aren't that fortunate and still want to get into the process. And I can do that all on YouTube. Look, it's a free resource and it's, you know, it's the definition of accessible and that really, and I kind of thought, right, I'm going to work with this because all of these things really fit with everything that I want to do. And she was, she, my friend helped me a lot as well. You know, she did a lot of like promos said, you know, follow her and that got me, it got me a few follows as well, albeit her niche is very different from mine, <laughs> but we actually met at law school. She was, she was a lawyer. She was training to be a lawyer, studying to be a lawyer. Um, so yeah, so there, you know, there are a lot of things that started off, but at that point, my main focus was 
helping students to get into the law. I didn't actually initially see it as, right, I'm going to build this brand. I didn't have a business plan to build it in the way that it's built. And then it just naturally kind of grew into all these other things. And I just loved it so much that I kind of thought, yeah, what can we do with this? Yes, I can do some more mentoring. Yes, I can do coaching. And I do a bit of like consultancy on personal brand building for lawyers as well on, on how I've kind of done that. And it kind of morphed into that. It, that wasn't the initial business plan, but now it's, it's become that in a way it just, you know, I just kind of became, oh yeah, that, that, that lawyer that YouTubes, you know, and that, that's kind of how I grew it because there was no one else doing it really, you know, and there have since been people who've started a lot of law firms started doing their own and stuff like that. But there wasn't really any of that, that around when I started off a few years ago. So that was kind of like my, my USP at the beginning. It's like, oh, you're the one on YouTube, you know? So, and that, you know, that was kind of accidental because I had no idea that it was going to take off really. Um, so yeah, I've just taken it from there really, and just gone in every direction that it's enabled me to, to be honest. And it, you know, it is a bit trial and error. Some things work, some things don't work. Some videos I think are absolutely fabulous get like, you know, very few views and some things that have taken me five minutes get, you know, 5,000 views. So it's, you know, there's sometimes a mismatch between what I think students want to know and what they think they want to know, because it's not, I'm not a teacher. I don't, I don't force people to sit there in a, in a lecture theater and listen to me. So your titles have to be kind of catching. I have to be kind of talking about things that they want me to talk about. So yeah, there's, there's a few, you know, there's a few things I've tried, haven't worked fine, put that to one side, try something else. And yeah, that's, it's constantly evolving in that way. I think I look at my analytics, I listen to my audience and what they like and what they don't like and, and respond which is the way any business should work, really. I think, you know, it's all about your clients, isn't it? So I think everybody should be trying to, to do that as much as possible and have their business dictated by their clients and what they want and what they need, because that's how you're going to continue to make money, isn't it? So <laughs> That's a great piece of business advice, as you say. Every business should be listening to that. Listen, I'm going to take a short break. And okay. when we come back, I want to talk about your strong association now with this city, Birmingham, um, what you think the future holds. What are the exciting opportunities in the city and perhaps a bit broader as well? And then you've mentioned, you know, this journey on YouTube has taken you into areas that you didn't expect. So maybe explore what next for Chrissy Wolf. So stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, AJ Duna here from downtown in business, Birmingham. I just wanted to speak to you about a few events that we have coming up in March. Let's start with Birmingham. Our first event that we have is Mipping Social in Birmingham. Yes, we can. This is going to be on Tuesday the 10th of March, starting from 5pm um, at the lovely Gaucho. Next, we have the Hospitality Power Panel. This is on Wednesday the 18th of March where we have a host of hotels, venues and hospitality leaders from across Birmingham um, who will come together to discuss the challenges and opportunities within the industry. Our final event in Birmingham in March is the Female Entrepreneur Power Panel. This is going to be held on Wednesday the 25th of March. It is a breakfast event, so it will be starting at 8.30am. We've invited Chrissy Wolf from Law & Border, Kim Leary, from Scribble, Sarah Grace from Kate and & Co, and Jenny Loynton from Loynton & Co Solicitors, who will be discussing their entrepreneurial journeys, corporate triumphs, and what the future holds for each of them. This event is going to be held at Gino DiCampo's restaurant on Temple Row. Moving on to Liverpool events, 
We have a fair few in March, but a couple that stand out for me. Um, number one is the Members Social. This is on Thursday the 19th of March at Dash. And then secondly, the Liverpool Property Club. This is in association with Project 4, um, where we will have the CEO of the Knowledge Quarter, Colin Sinclair, talking to us about how they are transforming almost half of the Liverpool city centre into a world-leading innovation district. And finally, I just want to talk to you about an exciting event that we've got on Tuesday, the 24th of March up in Manchester. It's in conversation with Roni, Reeves and Riordan, three CEOs, one from Manchester, one from Leeds and one from Liverpool City Council, all discussing how they're going to work together to drive the North forward. This event's going to be held at the Malmaison near Piccadilly train station. If you're interested in this event or any of the other events that I've spoken about, please don't hesitate to get in touch with your downtown in-business representative in your region. Welcome back to our podcast with Chrissy Wolf. Chrissy is a well-known solicitor in uh, in Birmingham and uh, and wider UK now through her YouTube channel, uh, Law and Broader. If you've not seen it yet, I would advise you to go and have a look, even if you're not interested in the law. It's very interesting and, and very entertaining um, you. YouTube presentation that she does on a regular basis. Um, we've been talking, obviously, an awful lot about the law, about your personal journey and your career, the building of your personal brand. Um, but you mentioned that you came to Birmingham 15 years ago and you've fallen in love with the place and obviously stayed and, and built a, a successful uh, career here. Um, what is it about Birmingham that has got somebody like you from a little bit further south falling in love with the place? Well, there's a lot of things, I think. Um, but I think the main, the main thing, I think if I was asked to give a word that a single word that describes Birmingham, I think it would be community. Definitely. It's so different. <clears throat> it's so different from London in terms of just the way the city works. I mean, I haven't spent much of my adult life in London, but from my friends who live there, it's all kind of micro communities. You know, there's not one community, whereas Birmingham is, is definitely one community. I remember this is sort of one of my defining Birmingham moments. If I fell in love with Birmingham, I think it was a few years ago. And uh, there was a girl who, this is when I first started using Twitter, I think. And there was a girl who said, put a tweet out, who said, I'm moving to Birmingham. I don't know anybody. Um, can people give me some recommendations? And uh, this girl, I think about, she had very modest following. I mean, I think she had less than a hundred followers. And I remember just see, and I was one of the people who commented on this tweet, but I just remember seeing this tweet just go viral for want of a better word. And I think it had something like over a thousand retweets, over 200 comments underneath it within just a matter of of days, people just saying, join this, or we're going for drinks here on Friday, come along, sign up for this. And it was just madness. And I just thought this is incredible. Like where, you know, how many places in the world does this happen? None. And I think that was, oh, it's bringing a little tear to my eye here. Stop, <laughs> stop chopping those onions, Frank. Uh, yeah. So it was just, and I just thought this is, this is rare actually. So that's, I think that was my moment. That was the moment. I would always say when people ask me about Birmingham, because we've had a great time here for, for four years now, um, that it's a city um, that feels like a village despite its size, because you do get to know 
a lot of key personalities within a relatively short period of time. Um, but the other thing I say, and as a Scouser, you know, this is something that, that we take as part of our DNA. It's a hugely friendly place. Um, but I think more so than Liverpool, I'd have to concede, it welcomes people in from the outside with little or no hesitation. Um, and so when you come to Birmingham, um, listen, they'll, they'll take the, the mickey out of my accent, which is fine. Um, but there's, I've never felt as though people are looking at me and thinking, well, you're not from here. So actually we don't want to engage with you. We don't want to involve you. Um, and listen, your accent's as far away from a Birmingham one as you're ever going to get, but yeah. you are embedded into this community. You know, everybody that I meet knows Chrissy Wolf. Um, and, for good reason. And, and, you know, yeah, well, I wasn't going to say Chrissy, but now as you're on the... <laughs> um, but no, that friendliness, I think that openness is, is a real plus for Birmingham and, and therefore, you know, makes the hosting of the Commonwealth Games. This is absolutely the right city for that in so many respects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I think sort of the default attitude in Birmingham is that we like you, we want to welcome you and we want to help you unless you give us reason not to. You know, I think that is the kind of, that. that's the attitude. And I think that's not the case at the other places. It's kind of in other places you might say, oh, well, you, you know, you got, you got to prove that you're worthy of our, you know, our, and in Birmingham, it's, it's not. It's like, you're with us unless you give us a reason to, for you not to be with us. And I think it helps having a, having it being a small city in a way. I mean, it's very easy to navigate. I mean, the city centre itself, it sprawls, the city centre itself. I mean, I live in a city centre and I can walk everywhere I've ever needed to go. Um, and I think that does help having, having a small city, but I think it is, it is about attitude. You can have a tiny city, but if people want to live their own lives, they don't want to engage, then you're not going to have that community feel. But I think there's, you know, there's a lot, and I think there's a lot of organizations, DIB being one of them, which, which really helps to facilitate that and bring everybody together from different sectors as well. Um, which is one of the keys, I think, you know, you could have, you know, groups of lawyers or groups of accountants or whatever who don't interact. But I think in Birmingham, there's a real kind of cross between everybody in all the different parts of Birmingham and all the different sectors, you know, and not just professional services, you get hospitality as well. And people in the performing arts all coming together at these events. So there's no kind of separation, I don't think by where you live or what you do, that just doesn't really exist. People are interested, but it doesn't kind of put you in any particular box. You know, I think a lot of people, I think collaboration is absolutely the key to success. And I think because we've got such a collaborative community, I just think, you know, Birmingham's going to do great things because we're so, we're so good at interacting with people with different skills. We've got boards, you know, we look at some of the key boards in Birmingham, they're made up of real mix of people with a real mix of backgrounds and skill sets. And I think that is, you know, that is really defining as to why it's done, done so well, because we've just got so many different things going on and people with, with so much experience who want to share that experience, you know, and kind of without, without withholding anything, you know, you've got some sort of key, you've got some key people in the community, you know, I could probably name hundreds, but I, I, off the top of my head, I'm thinking about Paul Cadman right now, who's so, he's so central <laughs> in kind of connecting people together. And he sits on a number of different boards and brings people from different sectors together, different age groups in charities, all sorts of stuff together. And I think you need real key pillars like that. People who go out of their way to bring everyone in and bring everyone together to kind of, to do that because not everybody would necessarily do that 
on their own. But when you've got some really strong community figures who take that role and who are very commanding when you just kind of go, okay, Paul, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I think, yeah, it it helps having some real key kind of figureheads who people really gravitate towards and really take a lead and who are really good kind of role models for the city. So yeah, that, that's, I think that's, that's really key. And people um, from Birmingham or people who are adopted Brummies like yourself are clearly very passionate about the city. The other thing I'd say about Birmingham is it's a party city, isn't it? So, you know, I always make sure that uh, I've got my Alka-Seltzer, what is it? Alka-Seltzer. Those little things that you take for hangovers, always have lots of them with me when I come for a night out in Birmingham because you do know how to to party, how to celebrate success because we've had some amazingly successful awards dinners here. Um, And again, as somebody who lives in the city centre, somebody who's obviously looking to have that work-life balance, you want to be in a city that's vibrant that knows how to have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this city could not be more different from where I grew up. I said, I grew up with lots of animals. I mean, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in, uh, in, in, uh, in Buckinghamshire, uh, with just a load of grass and not much else. So this is just totally alien from what I knew growing up, uh, growing up. And, uh, yeah, definitely very, very bright, very bright, very vibrant. Um, a lot of energy in this city. And I think that's definitely fed my energy. I think, you know, definitely helped me to, to kind of grow and want to help other people and build that you know, it's an intrinsic part of my personal brand, I think Birmingham. And I don't, I honestly don't think it would have worked as well as it had in another city because just so many people have been so supportive and everybody who kind of stumbles across it said, Oh, you know, I can promote it here or we can do something together or this is great. And you know, that's why it's, it's grown so much. Definitely. I mean, if I was trying to do this in some sort of isolated Hamlet where I grew up, I don't, you know, I just don't think it would have had that traction. Yes. I might've got the news article and subscribers off the back of that, but I think it was particularly with the events and things I do, people always giving me venues for events that I need to do volunteering, you know, their help, you know, wherever they can. And I don't think half of it would have, have been as much of a success without people just pitching in to help all the time. And I think that that happens with everybody. You know, everybody tries to help everybody as much as they can, which is a great city for, for networking. And you just build, I mean, anything I could possibly need, you know, I know someone in virtually every industry. So it's great just to be able to pick up the phone and be like, Oh, I need someone who's in branding or I need someone who's in events or, you know, and you just, it's there right there in your phone book or, you know, right next door, three buildings away or in your building, you know, it's just, it's great the way that it's kind of set up and there's, there's so many good connections here. And a great hospitality sector, of course, Mm. where where are the sort of places that, you know, if we were asking Chrissy for recommendations, we want a night out in Birmingham, good restaurants, and then, you know, on for drinks, where are we looking at? Oh gosh, there's a lot of options to put me on the spot here. Uh, I have to say one of my favorite restaurants at the moment is a place called Fazenda. I don't know where you've been. Yeah, it's we one use of, that. Yeah, yeah, one of yeah. our favourite venues as well. Yeah, really love Fazenda. It's got to be got to be one of my play, favourite places to go. Actually, in a really cool location in the city, really kind of close to the business district. I think definitely around the business district. I mean, in the last couple of years, we've just had places going up everywhere. It's just <laughs> been like, I mean, there's like a launch like a launch a week, isn't there? It's like, it's madness, which is great. I mean, it just shows how much this city is growing, that there's demand enough for these places to be opening 
all the time. And the city is, is growing out as well. We've had the regeneration of the jewelry quarter, loads of cool places now in the jewelry quarter opening up, um, which was kind of a bit derelict for a while. Mm. And it wasn't anywhere that anybody wanted to live, which, you know, and it's five minutes walk from the city. So it was an area that was crying out to, to be redeveloped um, as a potential spot for the, you know, for sort of commuter distance to the city. Um, and there's been some really cool developments going on there. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the Shoreditch, I would say, of Birmingham, the jury called a very cool, very edgy, slightly different vibe to the centre, sort of not corporate. Um, and then Digbeth is kind of regenerating now as so we've got the kind of these sports bars and these activity centers that are going on in Digbeth, lots of ping pong and, uh, kind of stuff like that. Um, ghetto golf and Digbeth dining club. There's great Digbeth dining club is great. And then we've got low, I mean, we've got, we've got six Michelin star restaurants now with Actar, mm. with Ophim just getting his, I think that's number six. Um, which is also insane for the, you know, for the size of the city, obviously just shows, you know, what great talent we've got here in, in, in so many sectors, but particularly that we've had two MasterChef finalists in, I think the last two or three years, we had Leo, um, from Simpsons and they've just had Stuart from the wilderness. Yeah. So incredible, you know, and these people are coming from Birmingham, which is, is, you know, makes you so proud you know, you would expect them to all be coming from London, given, you know, what the opportunities are available to them there. But the fact that they're coming from Birmingham is just, is brilliant. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a lot, a lot of talent in this city for such a small city, huge amount of talent coming out of it, which I think is just kind of testament to how hard we work to kind of help our, help our people succeed. Definitely. That's a, that's a very way of, a good way of, Selling alcoholism. This is the way we. This <laughs> is the way we rock to support our hospitality sector. We have to we all, really yeah, party hard. We, yeah, we also like a drink. Loads of cocktail bars. The Edge Bastard is one of my favourite cocktail bars. Actually, in the Alchemist, we've got two Alchemists now, which is is great. Really famous for their for their cocktails. So yeah, you can normally. I'm more of a prosecco drinker, I have to say, than a cocktail drinker. So you'll normally find me with a nice nice glass of prosecco in Fazenda or Fumo or something like that. <laughs> So when the eyes of um, the world are upon the city and the Commonwealth Games, um, the two weeks are important. You know, that's where the focus is going to be on the athletes and the participants and rightly so. But the city needs to use it as a catalyst to have a legacy and and for it to be sustainable in terms of its success. Um, Difficult question this in one sense, but equally you will have an ambition um, for Birmingham, what would be the sort of thing or the, the the things that you would like to see come out of the Commonwealth Games as that legacy for Birmingham? Yeah, well, I, I kind of see the Commonwealth Games as, uh, like you said, as a catalyst. I feel like the Commonwealth Games for Birmingham will be like the legal cheek article of LAB. I feel like people still have a, a misconception, not helped in some ways by Peaky Blinders, that Birmingham is a really old industrial city. There's nothing glamorous about it. You know, it's very kind of dark and dingy. Uh, and I think people you know, people don't know what Birmingham was about. I mean, I think for years, my parents scratched their heads about why I was still here and were just expecting <laughs> me to move. And I thought, well, you know, what are you, what are you doing? What, you're still there, are you? Okay, cool. And they came up kind of once a year and went, all right, fine. Well, just let us know when you're moving back. All right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, now they come up like two or three times a year and I'm taking them to somewhere new every single time and, and they love it. So I think it's kind of one of those things that I think people don't fully appreciate 
what what Birmingham is. They've got kind of an idea in their mind of what Birmingham is based on the history and Peaky Blinders, which is the only thing that most people know about Birmingham, particularly people from abroad. I've got quite a few contacts in, in the US and they're like, oh, so you're where Peaky Blinders is from? You're not always covered in soot and, you know, <laughs> knee deep in a canal. I'm like, no, no, there's, there's other stuff that goes on. Uh, so I think one of the things that I would like to come out of the Commonwealth Games is to is for people to really understand what Birmingham has to offer and to kind of drop this can you know this concept of what Birmingham is to them of just being an industrial so image. Yeah. yeah more modernized image, image modern, yeah. because I just think I mean I genuinely believe that it's going to do wonders for it, not just during that period um, which I think happens to a lot of cities they get a huge boost to the economy during that period and then just you know and then it's gone but I think people just need to come to Birmingham to realize what it is and once they come you know, hopefully some of them will never leave. They'll do a me and that'll be it. They'll, that's it. We'll have captured them. Uh, but even if they do leave, they'll come back, you know, and I think that is, is what we want to create. We want to kind of show, show people what we have to offer, but also our community as well. And, you know, I think, I think it just will. I mean, I, I actually don't think we need to do anything other than what we do and we just need to. And I think when people do come, they will see that. And I, you know, I think it speaks for itself. I don't think we need to take any more active steps. I think we just need to show people who we are and have our general Birmingham community attitude and that, you know, the rest of it will, will do itself, you know? Yeah. I, I, listen, I think it's, it's fantastic opportunity for the city. We were um, very fortunate to have 2008 European Capital of Culture in Liverpool that acted as a, as a huge transformational project for the city and the visitor economy there in particular has benefited from that. But of course, people forget Manchester hosted the Commonwealth Games. And although Manchester was already starting to gain some traction and momentum, that catapulted it then. And that international reputation, as you say, can be enhanced once you get people here and you get people talking positively. I'm no doubt that, that we'll be able to do that. Um, I don't know whether you're a football follower, Chrissy. But Aston Villa's appearance at Wembley, I can't let that go amiss because the only time I talk on these podcasts, we seem to talk about that team in red, the play in my city. I right? <laughs> don't particularly support. Um, yeah, loosely. So, so even that, you know, the sporting vibe yes. in the place is, yeah. is important, isn't it? Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we yeah, absolutely right. We've got amazing sports facilities here and some amazing sports stars that have that have come out of Birmingham. And we, yeah, we've got some really, really good facilities here, particularly the converted Birmingham Uni kind of sports centre now, which was used for training for the 2012 um, games, I believe. Um, that, that is an amazing, amazing place. And there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of great sport that comes out of Birmingham. We've obviously got the cricket ground as well. We've got the, the Edge Bass and Cricket Ground. There's a, there's a lot packed in to Birmingham in a very small area Actually, there's a lot to see. And I think particularly international visitors, you know, when they realise it's only just over an hour on the train, really. Well, I think that's a big misconception as well, is actually people who are coming to London think, oh, well, I'm going to go to Birmingham. It's miles away. It's, no, it's an hour. You know, it's just literally just over an hour on the train. If you're in, if you're in England for a week, you know, you can go for a day or overnight and you'll save a lot of money staying in Birmingham. <laughs> uh, we won't get into the debate about branding of cities. Um, but I've got to be in my bonnet about that in terms of Birmingham. I think we undersell the city through the West Midlands branding. So, you know, you wouldn't go to Manchester and find, or Greater Manchester and find anybody talking about anything other than Manchester being the attack brand. Yeah, Very similar now in Liverpool, very similar in West Yorkshire in terms of Leeds. And I think 
you know, the West Midlands needs to get over itself, really. You know, it's, I don't care whether you're, you know, a passionate Wolves supporter or, you know, Solly Hall-based politician. Yeah. The fact of the matter is when you go and speak as an international audience, when you're talking about branding, you've got to go with the thing that people know will recognise as your most dynamic brand. And in this part of the world, that's Birmingham. You don't have to comment at this stage, but you're welcome to. It sort of sounds like we are getting into the debate. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, if you you want my my view on it, I mean, I do. I mean, for me, it's, it's Birmingham on, you know, it's Birmingham. And I think actually that it's necessary for it to be Birmingham because I think that is the whole point. We're a community. It doesn't matter whether you're from the West Midlands, Greater Birmingham, Droitwich, you know, arguably Worcester. It's like, if you're here, you're with us, you're Birmingham you know? And I, I think that kind of symbolizes the fact that we don't separate, you know, we, we don't have that kind of split, you know, if you're with us, you're with us. It doesn't, we don't define people by kind of where they live. If they want to be a part of our community, they, they can be. And yeah, so I think for me, I mean, I think it's all subjective. People have got different experiences. People live in different parts and perhaps have diff, you know, negative experiences or particular passions. But, you know, for me, I've always grown up in the city. Well, not grown up, but as my adult life in the city. And, you know, I always feel that it's strong you know, strong Birmingham presence. And I think it should be Birmingham and everybody should be encompassed within that, but totally accept everybody's got their own views on that and reasons for the same. It's great that we're on the same page as that, Chris. <laughs> Could have got and, and, there, you know, from somebody who's a brand expert, let's hope the powers that be are listening. Um, <laughs> just want to move quickly on to uh, the female entrepreneur agenda, because mm. uh, as you know, um, we're organising a Women in Business Awards in yes. this fine city in June. Prior to that, this month, uh, March, we've got the International Women's Day, which is great as well. Uh, and you're doing a panel discussion, a power panel discussion for yeah, us. Yeah, we are. That's going to be really exciting. 25th of March. Yeah. Female Entrepreneurs Power Panel. We're doing a lovely breakfast panel at Gino De Campo, which is, I think, one of Birmingham's very newest additions um, to the city, which is really nice. So great venue to be doing that. Um, yeah. And it's going to be, it's going to be really exciting actually, because I haven't done, I don't think I've done an all female entrepreneurs power panel before. I think it's all be my first experience. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to that. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Um, I've, I do a number of events with DIB actually, and I've chaired a couple of a couple of events and panels for, for you guys before. And I really enjoy it and really enjoy the audience actually, as I was kind of alluding to earlier in terms of the different spread of people you get from, from different sectors. And it's, it's really great to be a part of that. I mean, I've looked at the panel and you've got some women on there who are achieving amazing things and done really great things in business. So it will be an absolute honor to be a part of that actually, and just hear different people's stories. Cause although I know a lot of them, I don't know their whole story. So it'll be really interesting to hear how they've got to where they've got to listen to some of their struggles in some of their different sectors. Cause it's always interesting to hear how, how women find it in their particular sector. Cause every sector is different, I think. And we've got our own story in law, but I'm sure people have similar stories in, in their own, in their own field. So it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about that. And of course, you were an award winner yourself last year at yeah. DIB. So City of Birmingham Business Awards. Let yeah. me get that right. Cobber. Cobber. Um, and uh, you walked off with the Woman of the Year Award. Yeah. Which was- uh, Amazing. Amazing with, honor. Yeah, Huge. Yeah. I mean- Well-deserved win, I'm well, told. And, thanks, you. Thank know, everybody you. Who, well, I, I thought the reaction of the audience was telling because it was such a popular victory. You know, you could just tell from the room 
how popular you are as a, as a personality in this city. I think it, you know, it was just incredible. I didn't expect, I don't think, I don't think anybody ever expects to, to win, but I, I definitely didn't. And, you know, there's a lot of hugely impressive, powerful women in this city. So to be kind of the overall woman of the year is, I think it's still sinking in however many months later. Uh, yeah. So that was, I mean, the night is kind of a bit of a blur to me. I think as soon as something like that happens, kind of the adrenaline sits, sets in and the whole night just goes by in a flash. But yeah, you know, I'll always, always remember that. And it was, you know, great to have, you know, I had a great table with all, all my friends around me and like, you know, the whole, the whole real room. I don't think there was a single table where I didn't know at least kind of two or three people sat on each table. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of reflective of what I was talking about in Birmingham and having a great community is that you go to events like that and, you know, everybody's supporting everybody. And I think everybody in each category was also supporting their fellow finalists. It was almost <laughs> like, you didn't know, you know, whether you're rooting for yourself or you, or you, you know, because you were equally excited for the other people in your category to win as you, which I think is also quite rare. Um, but yeah, again, a really, really nice touch for the Birmingham community to kind of support people even within their own category. Fabulous. Well, listen, Chrissy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. To talk to you. Thanks for taking part in our uh, podcast and uh, I'll see you if not before. It's our Women in Business Awards. Absolutely. I'm sure we will see each other before that. Um, and good luck with the future and, you know, just Thank tell, you. just, just give us a plug, Lauren Broader. How do you subscribe? How do people get in touch with you? Yeah. So best way is through my social channel. So my YouTube channel is Lauren Broader. Just search for it on YouTube and you can subscribe there to get notified every time I post a video, which is pretty much every couple of weeks. Um, also my Twitter, if you're interested in kind of legal news and events and things that are going on in around Birmingham, um, that's at Seawolf underscore LAB. And that's the same for my Instagram as well. If you're interested in fashion, which is another one of my, uh, another one of my, uh, hobbies and interests, uh, and also LinkedIn as well, where I go into a bit more depth about the legal market and do quite a lot of analysis about technology and changes in and around the market. So I tend to do my more kind of intellectual educational stuff on LinkedIn. So, and if you're interested in, in coaching or any, hearing anything more about personal branding, then please get in touch with me through any of those or um, my email is lawandbroader at gmail.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Chrissy. Thanks Been very great much. Chatting. Thanks for having me. And, uh, that's it from the latest DIB podcast. We'll see you all again very soon.